It's a great blessing to be with you here this morning. I hope you're all doing well as we gather together today in the house of the Lord. I do count it a, a twofold blessing to have been able to be with you two weeks in a row. You know, I'm not going to assume that y'all consider it a blessing, but I do appreciate the opportunity. Um, I, and I'd like you to turn with me this morning to 2 Corinthians, the seventh chapter. We're going to read four verses out of Second uh, Corinthians, the seventh chapter. We'll begin in verse eight. And as you're turning there, I would say, I mean, we gathered together in song this morning and we lifted up what I often refer to as the God-given instrument of our voice. And the reason we can refer to it like that is all of the man-made instruments that uh, you know, humankind has created throughout time is just an imitation of the way the human body creates sound. And you have a certain object, you know, and you have strings, you have chords, and you know, those sounds are projected into that hollow object, and then you hear those sounds coming out of that instrument. You know, if you play a guitar, you have that round hole in the center of the body of the guitar that projects out that sound. See, those are but imitations of God's creation and the, the instrument that he's given to us. And he doesn't require us to gather together this morning and give a display of man's ability and man's creation. He wants us to lift up the God-given instrument of our voice to him in song. Because that's something he's given us. That's something that brings honor and glory to his name. Because he made it. You know, we're the worms of the earth. He took dust in his hands and he crafted us into what man is today, what woman is today. You know, and, and I would even say he took the dust of the earth and he crafted something very, very delicate and small. Our voice box, the vocal cords that are inside of our body. And that's his instrument. That's something he's given to us. If you've been granted with a beautiful voice or if you're like me with a not so beautiful voice, we can give God the honor and glory for that this morning because he made it. Now, that's not what I'd like to talk to you all about this morning. We'll go to 2 Corinthians, the seventh chapter again, beginning in verse eight. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were before season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry, sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness! It wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Paul, remember, Paul's delivering this message to the same, the same church that he delivered the first Corinthian letter to. And in the first Corinthian letter, he dealt with some very, very serious issues. Now, the, the first Corinthian letter is where we learn about church discipline. That's a weighty issue. 
We learn about a gross example of immorality that was in the Corinthian church. And Paul said, hey, you need to deal with that. You cannot let that go unaddressed in your midst. He dealt with orderly conduct during the communion service. Because there were some people that were coming in and they were partaking of communion. They were partaking of that wine. And they weren't doing it in the proper way. And they were so um, ill-behaved that they often became drunk in a service that was intended to honor God. And Paul says, my first epistle made you a little bit sorry. Because Paul, as he is well known for among the apostles, he did not bandy words with the Corinthian church. He said, this is the way it is. This is sin and you need to deal with it. And he says, I know I made you sorry for a little time. And he says, but I don't repent of that. Because that, fa- that sorrow that you felt served a purpose. For I perceive that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. So the words that Paul delivered to the Corinthian church caused them to realize you know, the grievous nature of their sin. And so they repented of that. From all appearances, by this point in time, when he delivers this epistle to the Corinthian church, they have dealt with a lot of those sins that he pointed out were in their midst. And Paul says, you know, I did not rejoice that my my previous epistle made you sorry. He didn't go around rubbing his hands when he saw the Corinthian church cast down, you know, in prostrate and repentance before God. But he said, I do rejoice that it did cause you to repent. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. So when we think about sorrow, you know, that's, we don't necessarily view that as a positive thing. None of us like to be sad. You know, the Greek said that we all seek a state of eudaimonia, which means to live well and to do well. We all want to be happy. But Paul says, this sorrow served a purpose. I don't condemn this sorrow or say that it was a bad thing. In fact, he entitles it as godly sorrow because it led to repentance. Now, godly sorrow and repentance are not the same thing, you know, but one can lead to the other. You know, we do not, again, view sorrow as a positive thing, but someone can sorrow over their sins and maybe not truly address the issue. They can be sad for a season, maybe look at a sin that's in their lives and say, oh, Lord, I've offended your name. But still, that sin continues to grow and it continues to exist unmolested in their life. And Paul's saying you didn't do that because you sorrowed to such a great extent that you didn't you weren't just sorry for your sins, but you began to repent and you removed them from your life. See, this is a lot like fear. We think about the human emotion of fear, and the Bible says fear is not a good thing. 1 John 4.18 tells us there's no fear in love, for perfect love casteth out fear. That is to say, if we love, we demonstrate a fruit of the Spirit, love, then fear cannot exist in our lives because love casts out fear. We read verses like 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 where God says, He hath not given us a spirit of fear. But still, at the same time, on the other hand, we'll read in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The fear of the Lord prolongeth days. We're to approach the Lord in fear and meekness and trembling. See, because those things are not, that type of fear is not a destructive emotion. It's an awe and a respect for God, which is necessary 
for the child of God. So Paul's dealing with sorrow in the same way. He says there's a worldly sorrow which worketh death, and then there's a godly sorrow which delivers you from sin. Worldly sorrow works death because when we sorrow in a worldly way over our sins, we're often not sad because we consider it to be wrong. We're sad because we got caught. And that type of sorrow only works more sin. If you see, I've been blessed to be able to work with Brother Tim for a couple weeks now, and you'll see someone with a bunch of charges against them. And they didn't necessarily exercise godly sorrow. When they came before the judge and they said, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do this. I shouldn't have committed this crime. They weren't sorry because they saw it as wrong. They were sorry because they had to come before the judge and they may have had to spend some jail time. What that leads to is it doesn't cause them to go out and correct their bad habits. It just makes them try to go out again and do it in a different way so they don't get caught. You know, this is something that was drilled into my brain, thank God, by my parents who are still a lasting and very important influence in my life. They said, you know, you can obey with your actions, but we don't want you to just obey with your actions. We want you to obey with your heart. If we tell you to sit down and be quiet, you may sit down and be quiet because you're scared you'll get in trouble, but we don't want you to just be sitting down in your actions. We want you to sit down in your heart in submissive and obedience to our instructions. And see, that's the point Paul's making here. He says a worldly sorrow, it doesn't do anything to correct our actions. It just makes us try to sin in a more expedient manner, to sin in a more effective way so that we're not caught. But when we truly realize what sin is, and how it offends God, you know, we'll, no, we'll no longer continue it. Like the Corinthian church, when they realized the full impact and the full weight of the things that they were doing, they distanced themselves from those sins. They dealt with those things. And again, by the point Paul gets to the second Corinthian letter, he's not addressing really many of those same things anymore. He's moved on to a new set of issues. So the Corinthians took heed and they said, these things are an offense to God's name. We're going to deal with them. And when they did that, in verse 11, we read about what happened to them because there was a major transformation that took place. For behold, the selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sword. So Paul says, look, you sorrowed in a godly manner and look what happened. It wrought in you carefulness, a clearing of yourselves, It wrought an indignation over your sin, fear of God, a vehement desire for the things of God, zeal for His kingdom, an understanding of how sin is worthy of the judgment of God. See, when somebody understands this concept, they can't justify a sin that may be contained in their home, that may be contained in their own personal lives, in their cell phone, or their computer, or just in their hearts and minds because they realize it's not about how pragmatic sin is. It's not about whether or not it hurts anybody else or not. It's about the fact that God has commanded us not to sin to begin with. So we can't justify things by looking at them in a pragmatic sense and saying, well, I may participate in this activity. My conscience is convicted. The Spirit of God has convicted me, but it doesn't hurt anybody else. 
It's not like it's harming anybody else. But when we come back to the principle of God's word, we understand that it's not about that. It's about the law of God and what he's commanded us to do. Because the law of God is not something that's abstracted from our experience. What I mean by that is it's not just empty words on a page. Because God has written his law in the hearts of those that he has born again by the sovereign power of his Holy Spirit. And he has used the, the uh, physical and biological reactions of the body to demonstrate to the mind of the human being what you're doing is wrong. Because somebody can look, they can look at guilt and shame and they can say, oh, it's a product of social conditioning. Oh, it's a product of accepted cultural norms. But the reality is guilt is something that is given to us by God to show us that sin is wrong. So when we feel that in our hearts, that's a physical evidence that the spirit of God dwells within you. It's a matter of experience many times. And it can bring us to our knees in repentance when we feel that. The Corinthian church felt that. And there was a transformation that went on in that church, I believe. I wish I could have been there to see it. Because we're told that these people were overcome by carefulness and clearing and indignation over their sin. All of these wonderful spiritual emotions that we don't feel as often as we should. The reason for this was they they had just remained in sin for too long. They had been walking in sin for so long that they didn't even realize what they were doing. It seemed okay to them. And it stunted their worship. It stunted their church. It ruined you know, their, their Christian example. This is a, a very dire circumstance. And so Paul recalls their minds back to the Word of God. And he says, Just remember, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Now, these, this group of people, they were professing, baptized Christians. Paul had baptized some of them. It's not as if they were out on the street corner, wild and wayward from God at, in times past. They had converted, but they had forgotten God's Word. They had forgotten what Paul had taught them. And Paul says, you know, you've been delivered from your sins. You've been baptized into the church, but now I would recall to mind godly repentance because I want you to be delivered yet again. Not in an eternal sense, but from the consequences of what's going on. Now turn to Revelation chapter 3 because we're going to look at another circumstance in which there was a group of people that were really just blinded because of their sin. Um, and, you know, they had just forgotten the precepts of God's Word. Turn, Revelation chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 14. And, of course, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, you know, he's addressing these, very, these various churches that we find in the first several chapters of Revelation. And he begins his comments, or, or God's comments, to each of these churches by saying, unto the angel of the church of And then he would insert a location. So he would say, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. Or unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, write. Then he gets to um, one of the last churches that he addresses. And he says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write. See, the church is not mine. 
It's not any of y'all's. It's not the pastor's. You know, the, the church that my dad is at today is not, is not the church of Neil Honey. It's not the church of the Honey family. We hope and pray that it is the church of Christ. I hope Bethlehem is the church of Christ this morning. I hope it's the body of Christ. But the Laodiceans had forgotten that they were the church of Christ. And so Paul, he says, this is no longer God's church in Ephesus or in Thyatira or in Philadelphia. This is the church of the Laodiceans. They feel as if they own this church. I hope we never come to worship you know, with only ourselves to offer. Anything that I have ever had beneficial to say, if there is anything at all, I hope you all can recognize that that would come from God. Amen. Same for any other man that has tried to make efforts out of this pulpit. That comes from God. I hope we're not here this morning to simply offer what we have, to, but we're to offer what Christ has given us, and that deflects the glory and honor to His name. But the Laodiceans didn't remember that. Such a great extent that now they're the church of the Laodiceans. They have their own church now. And so, John tells them in verse 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I, God, will spew thee out of my mouth. God's saying, just like you were lukewarm coffee, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. God's demanding, hey, there is a transformation required here. White raiment. Clear your eyes so that you can see. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Here's the situation that Paul found himself in. He addresses his correction to the Corinthian church in the same way that God addresses his correction to Laodicea. In verse 12 that we read, he essentially says, I didn't come to you on the basis of the cause of him who had committed the sin, I didn't come to you on the basis of someone who had been sinned against. He said, I came to you out of my own love for the cause of Christ and out of love for the church here in Corinth. God came to the Laodiceans and he said, out of my love for you, I would recall to mind the things that you have been taught. And I would remind you that behold, in verse 20, Revelation 3, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, this invitation of transformation, if you will, is, is again offered to a group of believing Christians. They may have fallen astray, but I assure you, they are still saved individuals on their way to heaven. And, but yet, John says, he says, Behold, God stands at the door and he knocks. And if any man would sup with me, any man would partake of spiritual bread with me in the church, I would ask him to open that door. And to lay out his sins, at this point in time, they had just slammed it in God's face. So we don't want you here. Leave. And so John reminds them, remember, God stands at the door and He knocks. And if any man would open the door, I would come into him and sup with him, and he with me. 
Now this is, this is, remember what Jesus tells to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He also speaks of entry. He speaks of a type of figurative doorway. And he says, unless you've been born of the Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say that unless you've been born of the Spirit, you can't enter the kingdom of God either. So if there was a door there to somehow make some sort of contract of eternal salvation with God, unless God had saved you first, you wouldn't be able to see that door. And even if you could see it, you wouldn't be able to enter it. So let's dispel any notion in our mind that this is an invitation for somebody to open the door and let God into their hearts so that they might be saved. God has already saved these people. But the problem is, they looked at the church and they decided, oh, the church is ours. It is for our own gain. It is for our own use. And for that reason, nothing bad's going to happen if we shut Christ out. If He begins to walk through the door and through our actions and through our habitual sins, we deprive ourselves of His fellowship. It's not going to hurt us in any way. But yet John reminds them, Paul reminds them, You're in the church to have fellowship with God. You're in the church to have fellowship with each other. Because there's no sound like the saints gathered together in song. There is no sound like a saint offering up a humble prayer to God. There is no sound, regardless of who stands up here, of the preaching of the Gospel when it's done in power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. John and Paul remind them of that. He says, hey, don't let yourselves stand in the way. Open the door. Turn the knob. Christ is waiting on the outside. He's waiting to come in and sup with you. And that bread that He provides is food. That bread that He provides that we can partake of. The more we eat of it, the hungrier for it we become. But yet... It is bread that we will always be satisfied with. What a dichotomy. Only Christ could provide us with something like that. So the Laodiceans were in the same situation as the Corinthian church was uh, in in the first Corinthian letter. They just hadn't remembered that as many as God loves, He rebukes and chastens. And they hadn't remembered that they were called out of their godly sorrow to be zealous and to repent. So as we close, we can understand you know, the full implications of the Corinthian message. We don't, again, none of us like to be sad. None of us like to be downcast. But yet godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation and to a deliverance of us from our own sins. And yet the worldly sorrow that we ought to avoid only works death and further separation. Because God has called us to the interesting mix of simultaneous simultaneous godly sorrow and joy. He has told us that we are to sorrow over our sins, but at the same time, a joyful spirit, a joyful recognition of what the Lord has done for us is paramount for the disciple of Christ.